0: hello everyone and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts my name is richard on behalf of journey community church in fontana we thank you for tuning in last week we kicked off our new study of finding jesus in the old testament with pastor brian this week we're going to be continuing that study of finding jesus in the old testament with pastor chris now with all that said and done let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with pastor chris
1: So football, they give us a two minute warning and we're all familiar with that. God gave his people a three day warning and this was his message. Consecrate yourself. What is another word for consecration? Make yourself holy. And so, God, even before He comes, is telling His people, consecrate yourselves, your mind, your body, your soul, even your body, uh, your physical body, clean it, and the clothes on your body, wash them, for I am coming. And so, God, on the third day, meets the people of Israel. There He is on Mount Sinai, and you know the story the clouds fill God's holy mountain and thunder and lightning and his voice made the ground tremble and shake. And God calls to Moses and says, you, Mo, come up to my office. But everybody else, man, woman, child, even beasts of the field are not to come to the mountain. For as soon as they touch it, they shall surely what? Die. Die. God is making a statement. I am holy And you are not lowly. You are got a whole lot of problems with you. And so Moses goes on up and there the people have made themselves holy before the Lord and they're watching. And Moses then begins to talk and see the Lord. And God gives him two text messages, the 10 commandments, one dealing with their relationship morally with himself and the other tablet dealing with their moral relationship with one another. Moses gets this and he heads back down the mountain. He tells the people about what God is doing and then God calls Moses back up again. And so Moses is there for 40 days and for 40 nights downloading all of the Mosaic law. He's literally getting every jot and tittle so that he can report it to God's people. And what are the people doing down there at the base of the mountain? God for 40 days is telling Moses, I'm holy, therefore you be holy. Consecrate yourself. These are the offerings. This is what you can't do. This is how you bless me. Everything for 40 days. Holy, holy, holy. And God's people, unholy. And there they are, did Romans chapter one. God reveals himself to his people and man rejects God, reasons God away, and then puts or replaces another form of God in God's place. And so they saw the holy God and they turned to an unholy calf and they began to worship the golden calf. And God tells Moses, Mo, we have a real big problem. We're talking about holiness up here and those people down there are being unholy. And God had his anger kindled against them. And what was God going to do? wipe them right out. Again, holy God, sinful man. And Moses says, but, but you can't do that for your namesake. Everybody knows you brought the people with a great power from Egypt. What is that going to make you look like if we're all dead? What kind of God are you going to be like? And so Moses then goes down and he was furious. He slams the, the two text messages on the ground and he starts flipping out on the people. And he says, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Is it going to be the Lord or not? And the Levites, they chose God. And then Moses said, now you go remove the sin from the camp. And what did the Levites do that day? Does anybody know? They took their sword and killed how many men? And it's important. This is an important figure, actually. He killed three, they killed 3,000 men. 3,000. So on the day that God gave the law, 3,000 died. Why is this important? Because in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down, 3,000 were saved. The law, the spirit, everything is pointing to this redemptive story of God. So God then gives the law to God's people and it has three components. Does anybody know the, the three slices of the pie that make for the law? Anybody? So the first slice is, and we talked about this, the moral law. God gave the 10 commandments. This is what you are to do, and this is what you are not to do. The second slice of the pie is the civil law. And because you guys are my people, and because you are to be my nation... This is how you live. These are the laws. These are your judges. And this is how you are to interact with one another. So it was a civil law. And then does anybody know the third part, which finishes the law of Moses? The ceremonial laws. Then now you come with the priest and the priesthood and the sacrifices. And all of this points to one person, Jesus Christ. See us as Christians and the reason why we are doing this study is to show us to show you and to show the world really that Jesus isn't just a tack on Christianity isn't just the icing on the cake, all of it points foreshadows the coming Messiah, the sacrifice, the resurrection, the establishing of God's glory, and really the power and authority of Christ's kingdom here on earth and forever. All of it, history is his story. And so when you look at the ceremonial law, when you look at the moral law, and when you look at the civil law, everything points to Jesus. When you look at Israel, it, the name means governed by God. It points to Jesus. When you look at the history books, like Ruth and the Judges and First and Second Samuel, all of it points to Jesus. When you look at the prophets, their message points to Jesus, and it all culminates in Matthew chapter one and following, at the Babe and Bethlehem although that babe in Bethlehem was there before Genesis chapter 1. So everything points to Jesus. So this morning, we're going to look at one aspect of the law, the ceremonial law. Now, there's four components to the ceremonial law or key figures. There's the offender. Now, who do you think the offenders are? Us, the sinners. Then you have the one in whom we offend. Who is that? God, and then there has to be something in order to fix that problem. The sacrifice, but the sacrifice itself doesn't work unless you have what? You have the fourth aspect, which is what? You have the sacrifice, but who's doing all the sacrificing? The priests. So you have the offender you have the offended, you have the sacrifice itself, and then you have the priesthood in order to mediate between God and man. And all of it points to Jesus. So this morning, we're going to look at two aspects. The sacrifices itself in the book of Leviticus what the sacrifices are and how they point to Christ. And then we're going to look at the priesthood and see how Jesus is both the great sacrifice and our great high priest. How in the law, it points to the person of Christ. So if you ever Bibles flip over to a chapter you probably never heard on a Sunday morning, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter one, and we're going to start at verse one. Does anybody know how many offerings there are in the ceremonial law? That's one, uh-huh. Burnt offering, that's two. No. Sin offering, RG said that, so we have the sin offering. We have uh, the burnt offering. The grain offering, that's Three. Fellowship offering or peace offering, that's four. And there's one more, the guilt offering. So there's five offerings within Judaism. Everyone points to Jesus. Three are voluntary, meaning anytime you you feel like you need to sacrifice to God, these three were always available. And then you had two that God mandated must be done. So let's look at all five of these. The first one is the law of the burnt offerings. Leviticus chapter one, verse one. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, You shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. That's important. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting and he may, and he may be accepted before the Lord. So we have this idea of a burnt offering now the burnt offering the word burnt offering in hebrew means to ascend and the idea is that as you burn an animal the smoke ascends up to god it can also be translated up in smoke and that's the idea of a burnt offering now it was unique because you would take this offering and the whole animal except for the hide would be burned on the altar every part of the animal, from nose to tail, the animal was consumed with an entire fire. Now, if you were really rich, you would bring a herd. If you were okay, well off, maybe you were a shepherd or, you know, you were middle class, then you can bring, verse 10 tells us, a sheep or a goat. It says, but if his offspring is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. Now, if you were really poor, like a couple in the Bible, mainly Joseph and Mary, and you couldn't afford a a herd or a bull because you were broke, and you couldn't afford a lamb because you were broke, does anybody know what you could bring? Pigeons or turtle doves. And so in verse 14, we also are given that this burnt offering can consist of birds. But if this offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall off. He shall bring his offering uh, from the turtle doves or from young pigeons. So God says you can, uh, Sacrifice a bull. You can sacrifice a lamb or goat, or you can sac- bless you, or you can sacrifice birds. But this burnt offering had a specific meaning. Does anybody know what the meaning was or the purpose was of the burnt offering? It was for the purpose of reconciliation, or mainly repentance. It was when you willfully and intentionally sinned against God. Any of us ever sinned against God before willingly, intentionally? We know what God wants us to do, and we say, you know what? We're, we're going to go ahead and do our own thing anyway. The idea is you have a relationship with God, but you, as the offender, cause offense towards the Lord. Now, in the old system, the way in which you would get right before God and get back on speaking terms was you would do a burnt offering. And that burnt offering to God was to bless God and really say, I'm sorry. It was a form of repentance. And so God called his people to repent when they sinned. And how did they repent? They gave a burnt offering. Now, the burnt offering is nothing new. This actually went back all the way. Do you remember the first person who the Bible specifically said they gave a burnt offering to the Lord? Even Well, Job, I don't know if he specifically said a burnt offering. He may have. That might might actually be true. So I have to check on that. No, it was after Adam. It was before Abraham. Abel gave an offering, but we don't know what it was. The first time where the Bible specifically mentions an offering, a burnt offering before the Lord. Anybody know? Noah. What did God do? He flooded the entire world in judgment by because they were good people or because they were evil. So he consecrated the entire world unto himself again. He judged it, he got rid of all the sin and it was a brand new start over. Then the the ark stops, the water retreats and God tells Moses, Noah, okay, Noah, you can go out. So Noah, finally, after 40 days and 40 nights, here goes that idea again, right? Just like Moses was on Sinai. After 40 days and 40 nights, uh, Noah gets off, the boat. And in Genesis chapter eight and verse 20, it says this, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And look at God's response. Verse 21 and 22. The Lord smelled the smooth, soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Noah gave God a burnt offering, meaning there was repentance there, and what did God do? Blessed him. God blessed him. You see this idea throughout the Old Testament. When people give burnt offerings to God, it was a soothing aroma to the Lord. What was another important aspect of this idea of the burnt offering? It was to cost you financially, and it was to cost you intentionally. It was to cost you financially and intentionally. Do you think a bull is expensive? Yeah, it's expensive today, right? It's still very expensive. Sheep and goats, very expensive. Now you're doing this when you sin. How many times do I sin in a day? How many times do you sin in a day? Can you imagine I had to spend $2,000 on a bull every single day? Like I'd be broke, broke, broke. But that's the idea. You sin and it is going to cost you. And here's another thing. Look at uh, Leviticus 1 and verse 4. Leviticus 1 and verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons. The priests shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar. That is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the son of Aaron, the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet over the wood, which is on the fire that is on the altar. It's entrails. However, it's legs. He shall wash with water and the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burning burnt offering an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Here's what's interesting. You take the animal, let's say it's a lamb, and verse 4 says, or a goat, and you, you put your hand on its head, and then you transfer your sin on top of that, that animal. You, have you ever heard the, the, the phrase scapegoat? They're your scapegoat. You place all your sin upon them, and their life is taken instead of yours. But look at verse 5. I said it costs you financially, but it also costs you intentionally. What does verse 5 say? Leviticus 1.5. So who's the he? It, yeah, it's not the priest. It's not the priest who actually kills the animal. And a lot of people don't realize that. It's the sinner. You don't take the animal and then, you know, have the the rest, the shelter, put it down while you run back to your car. You actually take the animal before the tent of meeting and you take the knife and you kill the animal right there. You are the one slaying it. Now, it's really interesting because what happens when that when that bull or that lamb or that goat or those birds are your own? Think about that. You raise it from a little pup or a little puppy, a little lamb, right? Or a little goat or a little, what's a little baby cow? Yeah. Calf. There we go. And you raise it from a calf and you, you grow feelings. You get attached to it. Imagine taking your cat or your dog or your favorite beloved animal that you raised and then you go and you slaughter it. Imagine what that does to your heart and your mind. How sad you become. It costs you intentionally. And then it was supposed to be a male, unblemished and perfect. Meaning right when your animal got to the place where they could then start providing for you, either giving you milk or giving you wool or being able to actually turn from a liability to an asset, you then take it and you murder it. And God is showing that sin is costly. And when there is sin, something must die. Our sin is costly, and when we sin, something must die because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So how does Jesus play into this whole burnt offering? Well, when we go to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter five and verse one says this, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in Love. What is the burnt offering? It's the idea of repentance. You violated God. You want to get right into right relationship with Him, so you give the burnt offering as your form of repentance. And then Ephesians five one goes on and says, "Just as Christ also loved you, and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice." to God as a fragrant aroma. So just as, as Noah gave that burnt offering and it pleased God, just as the children of Israel came and gave the burnt offering and it pleased God, so too with us, when our faith is in Christ, it is a sweet smelling aroma unto the Lord because he is our burnt offering. Now, the second one, Leviticus chapter two is the law of grain offering. Does anybody know what the grain offering is? It can be just like, just like the animals, it can come from your herd or your flock and the grain can come from your field. Does anybody know what the grain offering does? So I'll help you because this is a little fascinating to me, at least. The Hebrew word for burnt offering. I'll show you where it's used in the Old Testament. In Judges chapter three, verse five, or I'm sorry, verse fifteen. It says this: Judges three fifteen. But when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up the deliverer for them, Ehud the son of Gera the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent, and here's our word, tribute by him to Eglog, the king of Moab. The word tribute there in Judges 3.15 is the Hebrew word burnt or grain offering. So what is a tribute? No, not necessarily. (laughs) What is a tribute? When you give tribute to a king, what, what are we doing? Honoring through how, how are we giving honoring the King? We're giving a gift and we're submitting to that authority. You know, when you have a nation that's going to come in and take everything that you have, one thing you can do is begin to give tribute to the King. And what you're saying is I acknowledge your authority and I'm submitting to that authority by giving something of value to you. So burnt offering is that idea of repentance. Now, when you come to grain offering, it's the idea of submission and worship. You submit and then you then worship God in giving to him this idea of thanks or praise. Uh, Leviticus chapter two. And actually let's go to verse 11. Leviticus two, verse 11. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall not offer up in smoke any leaven or honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. Every grain of yours moreover, you shall season with salt so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering with all the offerings you shall offer salt. So this is the only offering that doesn't have an animal. It's the only one. The other four, they all deal with the sacrificing of an animal. This deals with the sacrificing of the land. You give to the Lord the first fruits of your land, and you are paying tribute through worship. You are honoring him through worship. Now notice, what are the ingredients of the leaven? Or, darn! Well, that's one ingredient. What is the? What are the ingredients of the grain offering? It's right there on the screen. Bless you. So the ingredients should not be made with leaven or honey, but it should be made with refined flour, salt, and oil. Now this is interesting because salt does what? Ye are the salt of the earth. What it was Jesus saying when he said that. You are the preserver of the earth. What does leaven and honey do? What does it really do? When you think of it just from a biologic, chemical perspective, it it decays. That's what honey and that's what leaven does. It decays. It's a rottingness. And the Bible equates leaven with sin with this idea that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little sin permeates and sin rots and sin brings shame and sin brings decay. And again, sin equals death. When we sin, someone, something must die. So you come into the New Testament and you read this idea of uh, Jesus and 1 Corinthians 5, and Paul saying leaven causes sin. When people coat their steak in honey and they leave it out, they do that so that the steak can age because honey again begins the decaying process. So our worship and our tribute to God must be without decay, i.e. sin. The grain offering was an offering to God that was to be holy, It was to be pure. It was to be without this idea of any decay, meaning our worship is to last forever. And this is interesting because the burnt offering, what happens with the burnt offering? God gets the whole thing. They burn it and the priests get the skin. With the grain offering, it's a little different. God gets a little piece of it and the priests get to eat a little piece of the pie So that's the grain offering. Third, we have the peace offering. Does anybody know what the peace offering is? So peace offering in the real world, what is it? When I say I'm coming to you to give you a peace offering, what am I doing? Olive branch, making amends, right? The uh, husband and wife, they get in a big argument. Husband brings flowers, and a box of candy, and a little teddy bear. He's, he's, look at Rosemary, like I've never got that before. He's, they are, they are bringing a peace offering. Now, we would think, okay, well, that's what we do to God. We violated him. We need to make amends. Therefore, we bring him a peace offering. Wrong. That's the, a completely wrong view of identifying the, the Hebraic sacrifice of the peace offering. Remember when it comes to God, we can bring nothing. We we can offer nothing. We are saved by grace through faith and that of our not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. We can't bring peace. And this is also known as the fellowship offering. We can't make fellowship with God on our own. We can't reconcile ourselves to God on our own. The idea of the peace offering was an offering of thanksgiving. It was an offering to say to God, thank you for all that you've done in uh, Leviticus chapter three, starting at verse one, we see the peace offering. Now, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings, he is going to offer out of the herd. And here's the first time, whether male or female. So the gender does not matter when it comes to the peace offering. He shall offer it without defect before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and slay it at the door of the tent of meeting and Aaron's sons, the priest shall sprinkle the blood around the altar from the sacrifice of peace offerings. He shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. The fat covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall offer it up in smoke on the altar on the burnt offering. So you have the peace offering with the burnt offering. It is an offering of fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord but if his offering of sacrifice, but if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is from the flock, he shall offer it male or female without defect. And there are two reasons why you offer a peace offering. And this is an offering of thanksgiving to God. Does anybody know the two reasons why you offer this offering? I said one already to give thanks to God. It's a way in saying, God, you are so faithful. Does anybody know the second reason? No, no. No, I'll tell it to you. Leviticus 7.15. These are the two ways in which the Jews would bring a peace offering along with their burnt offering, which is a way to give thanks to God. Verse 15. Now, as for the flesh of his thanksgiving peace offering, it shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until morning. But if the sacrifices of his offering is a votive or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what is left of it may be Eden. So there's two times in which we give our peace offering, one in thanksgiving, and then one in verse 16. If his offering is a votive, anybody know what a votive is? It's a vow. When we make our vow to God, and then we complete our vow to God, then we give a peace offering to the Lord, because we are now in fellowship with him. And our vow, our peace offering to God is a thank you for being faithful, for getting us through the trials. Anybody know a very famous, uh, peace offering that was made in the Bible? I'll give you a hint. She was amazing. So there's like, not that many women named in the Bible, <laughs> she was incredible. She was faithful and she was going through tough times and she made a vow to God. No, you guys named every woman, but the woman. And she gave a vow to God and God was faithful. And because God was faithful, she fulfilled her vow by giving a peace offering to God. Who? Hannah. Let me, let me read you her story. Did we say Hannah? I'm so sorry, I didn't hear you, I'm so sorry. Hannah, let me tell you her story real fast. First Samuel chapter one. We know that she was married and she was barren. And in those days you were culturally ostracized. You were the unvaxxed, right? You were lower than everybody else because you were barren. And so because of that, you then or she then got a whole lot of grief from everyone else. Then first Samuel chapter one, verse 11 says this. She made a vow and said, oh, Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. A razor shall never come on his head. Then we get down to verse 20 and it says this. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him what Samuel Samuel Samuel, saying, because I have asked him from the Lord. Then the man Elkanah went up with the, with his household to offer to the Lord, the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband said to her, do whatever is best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her. Son, until she weaned him. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh although the child was young, then they slaughtered the bull and brought the bull to Eli. Notice she slaughtered it. Then she brought it to now the priest, just like we've read in Leviticus. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as your, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here before you praying to the Lord for this boy. I prayed and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked for. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. That, uh, sacrifice that Hannah gave before the Lord was the peace offering and the grain offering. Hannah gave the grain offering as tribute to the Lord. And what else did she give as a tribute to the Lord? Her son, her son. And then she then came to the Lord in thanksgiving. Why? Because she made a vow and God was faithful to see her through, fulfill that vow. And so when her vow was finished, she then gave God all the glory. Then what happens in chapter two? You guys remember? It's Mary's Magnificat in the Old Testament. Mary got her huge prayer in our New Testament from Hannah's old prayer. She breaks out in praise and worships God. And that is why it's called the peace offering or the fellowship offering. You give praise to God and you fellowship with him. So those are the three voluntary uh, sacrifices. Now, the the peace offering or the grain, uh, sorry, the peace offering was unique in that the priest got some of the meat, the uh, God got some of the meat on the altar, and Hannah would have gotten some of the meat too. So it's a fellowship offering in the sense that the offender, the offended, the sacrifice, and the sacrificers, the, the priests, all commune together with the same animal. It's called the peace or the fellowship offering. Then number 4 and number 5 we have the sin and the guilt offerings. These were mandatory before God. And they were mandatory in the sense that they must be done and they must be done in the grain o- or in the guilt offering with restitution. So sin and guilt offering, they must be made, and they must be made before the Lord, and they must be made before the Lord in restitution. Does anybody know what the difference is between a burnt offering and the sin offering? There is a subtle difference, but it's a big difference. The difference is this. In the... the, burnt offering, there is a relationship in which you have to be repentant of and come back into good standing. With the sin offering, it is sin that has been being done unintentionally. Same with the guilt offering. You're living your life unintentionally sinning against God. But when you've come into conviction and realization of what you've done, it is mandatory that you sin, and then you make restitution, you you fulfill the error in which you were living your life. So the Bible tells you and I this truth, that in our former lusts, we were dead in our sins and our trespass. The Bible says that in our former lives as Gentiles, we walked in the spirit of the flesh. We walked in darkness. The Bible tells us that you and I, unbeknownst to us, We're sinning against God for our entire life. You know, we had boyfriends or girlfriends and we were doing things with them and we were with substances and we were worshiping our own life and building up our own kingdom. And we were literally living and dancing to our own DNA. But then scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit does three things. What does the Holy Spirit do to the unrepentant world? He convicts the world of what? And there's three things in that verse. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So we have been living our whole lives unintentionally sinning against God. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, the righteousness of God, and the judgment of God because of God's righteousness. And then we are to come before God. How as Christians do we come before God? With our own works, with our own strength, with the sacrifice we cannot go to God without the sacrifice. The Old Testament Jew, their sacrifice was the sin offering. It was the Passover lamb. It was the, the bull or the goat. They would shed that blood and their sin offering would then go to God. And then they could have the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, and the peace offering. But that sin offering had to be done first. Why is that important when we come to the New Testament? We're convicted of our sin, we're convicted of God's righteousness, and we're convicted of God's judgment. And God tells us you cannot come on your own. And there is no temple, and there are no animal sacrifices, and there is no priesthood. So how then could a a sinful man get with a holy God? Impossible. Cannot happen. So God then sends his son to be our sin offering, our guilt offering, our burnt offering, our grain offering, and our peace offering. In other words, we have relationship with God because of the sin offering. Our retribution has been paid because of the grain offering in Christ. We then are repentant of our sin on a continual basis because of the burnt offering. We pray tribute to God in whole worship because of the grain offering. And then we thank God for all that he has done in our lives. And that is the peace or the fellowship offering. And all of that is tied into the person of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter one and verse 17. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God and raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse one, for the law, since it had only a shadow of good things to come and not, ver- and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers have once been cleansed would no longer have consciousness of sin? What the author is saying is this, If a a lamb from the Old Testament could save you from sin, then why would they have to keep going back to continually offer sacrifice? If the blood of bulls and goats could do it, verse 2 says you would only have to do it once, and then you were good to go. What the author of Hebrews is saying is Christ is a greater sacrifice He's not only the summation of all five, but he is far greater because his is forever. It's a once and for all sacrifice. Verse three, but in those sacrifice, there is a reminder of sin year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for your sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, which says, Jesus said the whole Bible is about him to do your will. O God, after saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices of sin. So burnt offering, sin offering. You have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first order to establish the second. By this, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Here's one other fascinating thing. The sin offering, you killed the animal, but do you know what you did with the animal afterwards? Before you burn the sin offering, do you know what the, the priests would do? They would take the, the, the sacrifice and they would take it out of the city. There was to be no sin within the city. Was Where was Jesus crucified? Was he crucified right there in the temple? Was he crucified in the heart of Jerusalem? What did they do with the Lamb of God? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11. For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering of sin are burned outside the camp therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his approach for we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city, which is to come, which is to come. Now I know this has been a long one, so we'll we'll wrap it up really quickly, but you have the offender, you have the, uh, the one who offends. You have the sacrifice. But what happens if there's no mediator? If there's no middleman? How do you get to God? You don't. So how does the Orthodox Jew today with no temple, no animal sacrifices, no Levitical priesthood get to God? You don't. You don't. You do not get there. And this is why the Bible is pointing that not only is Jesus our sacrifice, but the very priesthood himself or the priesthood itself in the Old Testament symbolizes Jesus Christ. Hold on, let's, let's question afterwards. So it shows the, the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what was wrong with the priest in the Old Testament and even the New Testament? What was wrong with them? They were sinners. They were unfaithful. They turned uh the the sacrifices of God into livaciousness and appetite. They were the God of their own bellies, and they turned it into, you know, this big economy where they made tons and tons and tons of money, and God judged them. So if man is sinful and God is holy and we must sacrifice, but there's no priest to do it, we are in big trouble. So Christ then is our priest. And so I'm going to quickly show us in Hebrews chapter seven, how God or how Christ, how God in Christ is the great high priest. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 23, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. So what is Jesus? Why is he better than the Old Testament priests according to verse 23 and 24? Cuz he's eternal. What happens with the other priests like Eli or the sons of Aaron or Aaron himself? You, they get old and they die. They get old and they die. They get old. So you're just churning over priest after priest after priest. Jesus is eternal. Verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The priests were the middlemen. They were the, the cell phone provider, if you would, between God and man. You couldn't talk to the Lord without the priests. So they were the mediators. Now, Jesus is our great mediator. What does that mean? It means he's praying for you and he's speaking on behalf of the Father on your behalf all the time. So when you think no one loves me, no one cares for me, no one's thinking about me, Jesus, as our great high priest, is constantly thinking of us and praying over us before the Father. And he's also our defense attorney. The scripture says that Jesus Christ the righteous is our advocate before God the Father. Satan is constantly telling uh, God how you and I and Journey Community Church, and we're all sinners and unworthy. And Christ is there as our defense attorney advocating on our behalf. The priests of the Old Testament could not do that in the same form. Verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy and innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because he did once and for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of oath, which comes after the law, appoints a son made perfect. Two things here. The priest would have to sacrifice animals. Christ sacrificed himself. The animals would have to be sacrificed over and over. Christ's sacrifice was once and forever. The priests had to sacrifice for their own sin so that they could then go before God holy. Christ was sinless. So he never had to sacrifice on his own accord. And then lastly, and we'll close with this. I promise Hebrews chapter two, verse 17. And this is a big one when it comes to our person, our relationship and inner interpersonal relationship with Christ. Hebrews 2.17. This is another reason why Christ is better than the priests of the Old Testament. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That means to satisfy God's wrath. For since he himself was tempted in that which was suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Here's the last reason why Christ is better than the priests of the Old Testament. He is faithful, he is merciful, and he knows what you're going through. The priests of the Old Testament, they didn't have land. God gave the land they they weren't out and about working like the regular folk they worked for god they couldn't relate to the the sinners that were out in the world but christ who came who lived among us being made in the image of man but being god lived the cert- perfect sinless life and can relate to our sin he knows our temptation. He knows what you and I struggle with. And so he is a faithful and merciful high priest. So with that, let's pray. I want to congratulate and reward you for making it through Leviticus. It's a, it's a tough text, but it all points to Jesus. Every sacrifice is Christ and even the priesthood himself points to Christ and shows Jesus as both the best sacrifice and priest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God. And we, Lord, we thank you that your scripture is consistent. Lord, we see that we must come before you with a sin offering to alleviate our guilt and pay retribution for our sin against you. We know God that we must come in repentance so that our sin can be renewed and atoned for on a daily basis. And we know, God, that we must pay tribute with our life, giving thanks in all things, for this is the will of God for us. We thank you, God, that our sacrifice is eternal. We thank you, God, that our sacrifice will last forever and ever. And we thank you, God, that the Holy Lamb of God, who has sacrificed for our sin, was accepted by you through the resurrection and ascension to heaven. Our sacrifice is solid. Our priest is solid. Our call to salvation is solid. God, thank you for giving us hope and the absolute assurance of coming good. We love and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church of Montana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church of Montana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.